0: This podcast is supported by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com dinner party
1: Welcome to The Dinner Party. This is your icebreaker.
2: Here's a joke, and it's a joke of my invention. I invented this joke last week. Um, I've been thinking so much about confirmation bias lately. I've started seeing it everywhere. <laughs> you see, for psychologists, that's like the funniest joke ever.
3: I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nunam, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations.
1: You just got a joke from writer John Ronson. That'll help break the ice at a party full of psychologists. We will speak with John later about his new book, Lost at Sea, and we'll also be hearing from Monty Python's Eric Idle, who is here to answer your etiquette questions.
3: Also coming up, celebrated musician Iris Dement celebrates other musicians, and Adam Pally from the TV show Happy Endings swings from the rafters. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk.
1: All week long, you've been hearing these headlines.
3: Easter bringing new misery to those in New York
2: and New Jersey. In three states,
1: measures to approve same-sex marriage were among the winners.
4: President Obama has won a second term.
1: Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Richard Lawson. He is senior writer at Atlantic Wire. That is the Atlantic's online news blog. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend?
5: I'm going to be talking about the first ever bedtime story written exclusively for dogs. (laughs) I would be too. Yeah, if you can believe it. Because dogs have trouble falling asleep? There is a particular reason for it, but actually I, there is a clip I believe that we have, so we should listen to that, and then I'll explain what we're listening to. Okay, let's hear it. Hello, dog. Are you ready for a story? This story is all about a very, very good
4: dog. Just like you. Once upon a time, there was a dog called
6: Stanley. He was a very special dog.
1: Oh, wow. Rave wow. as a lion. I think it's, so. It's a bedtime story for a very narcissistic
5: dog as well. It sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the great British actor <laughs> Simon Callow. Yeah. And so what he's doing, you can listen a little bit. He's he's kind of elongating certain letters, and there's a lot of kind of long L's. And in the print version of this bedtime story, which was developed by like scientists, it tell <laughs> it gives you cues to like sort of drag out those words because they're supposed to relax dogs. Wow. The reason why we're talking about it this week is because it was Guy Fox Day. This week in the UK, and apparently, because there are all these fireworks on Bonfire Night, dogs get very stressed out. Oh, so they released it now, and so it's supposed to, I guess, during the fireworks, you're just supposed to read them. Or you can have Simon Cowell read it. Yeah, I'm
3: glad Simon Cowell is reading it because if it occurs to you to read a book to a dog, you shouldn't be old enough to read, I'm thinking,
5: right? Because (laughs) you should. Correct. Like, what kind of (laughs) adult has time to read a book to a dog? Right. But with Simon Cowell, there's like kind of a more like, intellectual you know Sure, sure. maybe they'll get Stephen Fry to do a version you know we could just run down the the great list of British intellectual actors that'll
3: be for kittens right yeah (laughs) Ian
1: McClellan's Chaucer for Birds will be next Uh, Richard Lawson thanks so much for
3: the small talk thank you and now time for cocktails Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our patented history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This coming week, back in 1859, a Frenchman introduced the world to a new performing art. And that wasn't even his most famous invention. Michel Philippi tells the story.
0: Jules Léotard was born to fly. You wouldn't have guessed it when he was a teen. Back then, he studied law and was on his way to a career as some kind of barrister. But his father taught gymnastics, which may explain why, in his spare time, Jules started practicing acrobatics. Specifically, spectacular stunts on the trapeze. Instead of using a net, he swung around over his dad's swimming pool. Apparently, Jules found this a lot more exciting than the courtroom, because eventually, he gave up on law and landed a gig as an aerialist in Paris's Franconi Circus. On November 12, 1859, he made his debut with a trapeze act unlike any audiences had ever seen. Instead of doing tricks on a single trapeze bar swinging back and forth, or on one that stayed in place, Jules grabbed one trapeze and leapt from a high platform like a diving board. Then he swung from that bar to another, executing somersaults in between. He called it the flying trapeze. He was an overnight sensation. And it wasn't just the act that grabbed folks' attention. It was also his outfit, a knitted one-piece deal he designed to allow greater freedom of movement, and also to show off his impressive bod. He called it a mayo, a generic word for a tight-fitting shirt. But years later, it came to be named after its inventor, the leotard. Alas, Jules didn't survive to see his invention become essential workout gear. He died of an unknown disease at age 28. The good news? He did live to hear the song he inspired.
3: That was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Emrique Aguilar, and he's the bartender at Playtime Cocktails, a trendy night spot at the Artou Hotel in Paris. Emrique, how is Paris at the moment? It's, it's autumn. I'm guessing it's beautiful, no?
7: Yeah, it's very lovely, but the thing is that it's a bit uh, rainy at the moment, so, you know we try to uh, to live with it you know
3: well I'm calling you from New York so it's a little it's a lot rainy here so I uh, yeah
7: what... yeah I guess so <laughs> I guess it's a uh, big trouble for you at the moment
3: That's right it's been a busy it's been a tough week but I'm not here to talk about that I'm here to talk about this fascinating history you heard the history what drink did it inspire you to make
7: So the drink uh, I'm gonna make is called the uh, flying jewel
3: the flying Joule, okay. Yes.
7: You need to use the shaker and uh, and the cocktail glass to make this cocktail. Okay. The ingredients: it's going to be four centiliters of vodka.
3: Of vodka, okay. Yeah,
7: it's going to be then uh, two centiliters of Saint-Germain liqueur.
3: And so the Saint-Germain liqueur is made from elderflower. Is that a common flower in in France?
7: It's a mountain flower, so it's not very common. But uh, I've used the Saint-Germain liqueur because uh, Saint-Germain, it's a very famous, trendy area in Paris. Okay. The fact is that uh, Gilles Leotard is first trapeze show in public in Paris and it's very close to Saint-Germain area so i think it was a nice uh, connection
3: I see so one of his early performances was near the Saint-Germain area which is a kind of a trendy area so what else is in the drink
7: Then i use uh, 1.5 cent- centiliters of uh, lime uh, juice Okay then three centiliters of apple juice, and um, to finish is going to be one centiliters of uh, sugar syrup.
3: Wow, this sounds really sweet, and and it's filled with interesting flavors. Can you tell me the name of the cocktail again?
7: Flying Jule.
3: It's the Flying Jule, and it's, yeah. do you know the cocktail, the Julep?
7: Yeah, definitely. Yes, I know. You the mint and the crushed ice and the bourbon. That's
3: right. So maybe in the summer you could turn, you could create a Flying Julep, which would be fun. Yeah, yeah,
7: definitely. Yes. <laughs>
3: So, Rico, interesting history. That's true. But um, I was kind of hoping that we'd hear about Leotard's rivalry with his American counterpart, Arthur Spandex.
1: (laughs) Of course. The man who sheathed America,
3: Arthur. And many heavy metal bands. Yes, that one. That's true. Got to start not by doing anything athletic, but by ruining the 80s. Yeah, visually
1: anyway. (laughs) Uh, People, if you'd prefer to forget about the 80s, you can find the recipe for the Flying Jewel at our website.
3: It's dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've got cocktails in hand, now the dinner party needs some music, and this week we've got a playlist courtesy of Iris Dement. Yes, her debut album Infamous Angel was called
1: one of the essential recordings of the 90s by Rolling Stone magazine. She has sung duets with Steve Earle, Emmylou Harris, and most famously John Prine. This month she released her first album of songs in eight years. It's called Sing the Delta. Here's Iris with suggestions for a dinner party soundtrack.
8: This is Iris Dement. I have a new album called Sing the Delta, and I'm going to spend a little time with you here today on the dinner party, talking about some other songs that I've been known to play around supper time. and if you were at my house, you just might hear one or two of them. The first song I've chosen is a Willie Nelson recording of a Tom Waits song called Come On Up to the House.
9: Come on up to the
8: house. It's a great melody, everybody's singing their butts off, but apart from that, I like what it says and it talks about, you know, creating this safe place where you invite folks you love to come and um, leave their worries outside. I know you're crying, it don't do no good, come on up to the house. I'm the last of a lot of kids, I'm the last of 14. You know, there were a lot of hefty women in my world. My Aunt Vanita, you could come over there and five minutes later, there was a spread you wouldn't believe. If 40 people were there, she could feed them. And my mom and all these women in the kitchen made me feel just safe and loved and cared for by way of feeding me. And um, I feel that in this song. So the second track I've chosen is How I Got Over. By Mahalia Jackson, and there are two versions of this song, and the other one is by the amazing, wonderful Aretha Franklin. When I hear Mahalia sing it her way, you feel like it's from the perspective of a woman who's lived a long time, and she has already gotten over. Her plane's been up in the air, and it's coming into the landing. In Aretha's version, it's like she's, um, I wouldn't say trying to get her plane up off the ground. She's up there in the air, but she's still just not quite sure she's going to make it. So there's a lot of juice and oomph, you know, to the thing. I would save that one for after the supper, when the party gets to rolling. You know, you just got to get up on your feet when you hear this one. The third song that I'd like to play for you is one that was written by Greg Brown. This song is called The Cheapest Kind.
3: Mama fixed the soup beans
2: and serve them up by candlelight.
8: I heard it come on the radio one night, and I remember looking out the window into the dark prairie and saying to myself, if I ever could figure out how to write a song, I would want it to be something just like that. But the love love, love. It was not the
2: kind. It was riches, 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 riches.
6: Any you could ever
8: find. I had given up on trying to write, and when I heard that song, it reminded me of how much I wanted to do what he was doing. And then um, you know, surprises abound, next thing you know, what 15 years later we're married. Well, I think the last song we're going to do here is one of my own songs that's off of my new record. It's called Go Ahead and Go Home. Don't take that personally. Go on ahead and go home. God, you know, it's funny how these things come to you. It just occurred to me that that's the first track on my record. Somebody should talk to me about that. It's too late now, isn't it? Go let your mama see.
3: Singer-songwriter Iris Dement sharing her dinner party soundtrack. She's on tour now in support of her new album, Sing the Delta. And, Brendan, I love that she married one of her favorite songwriters.
1: It's kind of sweet, right? It's amazing. Although it's good that that's not common, because uh, Bruce Springsteen would have, like, millions of spouses. (laughs) That's right. right. Chris Christie's wife would be sad right now. Indeed. And alone. (laughs) Everybody, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Monty Python's Eric Idle states his beliefs.
4: I won't stay in a world without love.
3: Or actually, he sings them Mm. when the dinner party continues.
0: This podcast is supported by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers, offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is Joseph Anton, a memoir by Salman Rushdie. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash the dinner party. That's audiblepodcast.com slash the dinner party.
1: Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano.
3: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, actor Adam Pally from the sitcom Happy Endings goes back to his beginnings, and we get schooled about video games. Yes, if only that was a
1: college major. But first,
3: it's time for our etiquette segment. Each week,
1: you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time around is Eric Idle. He is a writer of novels. He sings quite well. Uh, Oh, yeah, and he was a founding member of a little comedy troupe called Monty Python's Flying Circus. He, of course, created the hit stage show Spamalot, based on Python's oeuvre, which won the Tony Award for Best Musical. And starting this coming week on iTunes, you can download video of a staged
4: reading of his play, What About Dick?, starring folks like Eddie Izzard. Eric, it is an honor. Thank you. It's not a reading. It's actually a play. They perform and sing and dance and do everything. There's six filthy songs in there, too. Yeah. So <laughs> November the 13th is Dick Day. That's the day. Oh. You can download it round the world. All right. So, all right. Yeah. We should quickly note, first
1: of all, for any FCC officials in the audience, that the, the title of your play refers to a person.
4: It is, Richard. Yes, absolutely. What about Dick? Yeah, okay. All right. You know, a perfectly well-known American name, yeah. I understand. Well, right? it's a you healthy... had a president, Dick Nixon, Certainly. didn't you? true there's Moby Dick there's Dick Clark yeah Dick Clark unofficial president indeed yeah Keith Richard (laughs) you
3: had Keith Richard oh we did that's right how about you give us a synopsis of this Ooh, well that's much harder to do
4: but it's really like a comic event you know got Russell Brand and Eddie Izzard and Billy Connolly so they were encouraged to improvise so it's kind of crazy and it's really about the decline and fall of the British Empire as seen through the eyes of a piano (laughs) I see and Um, it was
1: staged here in Los Angeles it was done
4: at the Orpheum Theatre four nights 2,000 people Right.
1: Screaming and crazy. You didn't, I'm assuming, stage it in the UK because it's about the downfall of that country.
4: Well, I mean, it's not necessarily downfall to lose your empire, as so I think you'll find out. <laughs> that makes us feel better. Thank so, God.
3: So you taped this in Los Angeles. Can we expect to see this in uh,
4: on Broadway anytime well, soon? Well, the difficulty, the reason I filmed it or taped it or did it in HD was because you can't get these people together on Broadway yeah, for really. four months. It's insane. 80 years you're lucky to get him for dinner. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's true. And Russell Brand. You Well, also Russell had... Brand, you know. Yeah, but if you did Angle a pop singer in front of Russell Brand. He'll show up. <laughs> yeah. Russell is a bit of a flirt, I must say. That's a surprise. Yes, it is a surprise. <laughs> I did the Olympics with him too, which is fun.
1: That's right. You performed the Monty Python song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, yes. at the Olympics closing ceremony. Speaking of Python, This is an etiquette segment. Back in the day, you were sort of notoriously known, the members of that troupe, for being kind of
4: at odds at times, let us say. How did you resolve issues Uh, in Python? Very very simply. We all have Oxford and Cambridge degrees, so we resolve them by violence. (laughs) I was going (laughs) to say. But the fact is... We would argue very, very intensely about what sort of chair it should be. Yeah. (laughs) You know, in the sketch. No, it's not funny if it's an armchair. Yes, it's funnier if it's an armchair, you know, (laughs) a sofa. How about a sofa? Sofa's quite funny. You know, I mean, So there were arguments, but they were all bizarre and silly.
1: There's a story, and perhaps apocryphal, that there was one point where you actually hurled chairs at each other. Is
4: that true? I don't know. Terry would have a used to have a very slight temper issue. Terry Gilliam, Terry Jones. (laughs) Terry Jones. Mm -hmm. And John would ride him, ride him, ride him, and push him, push him, push him. And then he would slam a chair down or go and break something. He'd explode. (laughs) Well, it
3: sounds like uh, you worked with a group of people who knew how to behave. (laughs) So you're the perfect person to tell our audience how to behave. Indeed. my joy. All right. <laughs> All right. Our first question comes from AJ in St. Louis, Missouri. AJ says, I'm a big guy. He's 6'5", 300 pounds. What's the deal with people just beating on me? Complete strangers at parties will start slapping my arms going, look at you. Why is this okay? But normally pointing out
4: others' obvious physical attributes is not. Well, I think you should always point out obvious physical attributes wherever you go, by the way, AJ. Um, I would say don't go to parties. <laughs> <laughs> or you could you could pretend to be on a diet, and they could say, "This is AJ. He's just lost three hundred pounds, so don't touch him, as he's still sensitive." I like
3: how AJ's so sensitive. He's like, "What's the deal with people just beating on me?" You know. Yeah. And then he wrote a note to a public radio show. He seems like a sweet guy. Yeah,
4: I think a he's a little sensitive. Uh, I think he's big
1: sensitive. <laughs> yeah. <Well. laughs> um, here's here's another question. Another
3: question from Laurie in Chicago, Illinois. Laurie writes, I've been married for 10 years, and I still don't know what to call my mother-in-law. It's become a bit awkward to just say, hi, you, since it's been 10
4: years. It's a long time. What does she do? Very easy. You say, hello, mother-in-law, and she'll freak out. And she'll say, please, hmm. call me Doris. Or you can just start by calling her Doris. <laughs> <Okay>. Regardless of <laughs> what her Regardless name of what her name is. That's <laughs> the best thing to do. Hello, Doris. <laughs> and then she'll take a little while before she has the nerve to say, my name isn't Doris. It's... Or she might just accept being called Doris. That's true. (laughs) She's a real wimp. And you might be
1: right. Maybe she is named Doris. Yeah. That's probably a 1 in 10 chance of that (laughs) in America. (laughs) Really? Uh, Here's another question. This comes from Lindsay in Fort Collins, Colorado. And Lindsay writes, I am a communication writer. I work with a lady who has become a mentor. Here's the issue. She says, expresso, instead of espresso, obviously. It drives me crazy because I've always considered the pronunciation a sure sign of a non reader and a non thinker. Mm. What to do?
4: Mm. Well, I'm not sure you're right. Because I still say tomato, you see, mm. and that's just when ordering an espresso. <laughs> but um, actually, a matter of fact, I say espresso. Is that I true? I do. So you may have an ex limey on your hand. Wow. <laughs> Which doesn't mean they're stupid, just foreign. Because <laughs> when we had, when I was back in the 50s and coffee first came into our country, we had espresso bars and espresso bars. There was like, but espresso was definitely a variant and a usable form of the word. Was it? Because t- it's express. And espresso is just the Spanish version of express.
1: See, you're Cambridge educated, so you can teach <laughs> One me One of the these first things.
4: things they taught us. <laughs> I'm, I'm worried that Lindsay has put her faith in the absolute wrong person.
3: What if, you know, she really is just made her mentor a not very smart person? Well, then she's not a very smart
4: person, <laughs> is she?
3: <laughs> well, there we go. So she has, she has a mentor. They yeah. belong together. The perfect mentor for <laughs> Lindsay. All right. We have one, one last question that we ask of all of our guests. It's, what's the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? Details, please.
4: Well, I, it was actually probably a party I threw in London, and I introduced Robin Williams to Peter Cook, the funniest uh, English comedian ever Mm -hmm. and great improviser. And Mike Nichols was there too. And it was just, the comedy went nuclear. And it was just (laughs) unbelievably hilarious. And nobody can remember a thing we said. (laughs) Uh, Because of the nature of the party. Because of the nature of the party and the amount of alcohol we'd all consumed. But my birthday last last birthday party sing-along did go until 5.30 and that was quite memorable.
1: You had a birthday party sing-along?
4: Every party at my house ends up with a sing-along. Really? Of what, course. What's a, what's a typical song that you would sing? Yeah. Well, runaway or, you know. By, by Del Shannon? Of course. Any Beatles. Uh, All right, start one up. And Peter Asher does, Please lock me away And don't allow the days Here inside Where I hide Oh, With me loneliness I don't care what they say I, I don't won't stay, stay in a world, world without love, love.
3: A great sentiment. Eric Geidel, thanks for telling our audience how to behave. <laughs> You're welcome.
1: And
0: now, time to eavesdrop.
1: Comedian Adam Pally is a longtime performer at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theatre. These days he also plays lovable slacker Max Blum on the TV show Happy Endings. It just began its third season. Today we overhear him tell a dinner party worthy tale.
9: Hey, my name is Adam Pally. I play Max on the show Happy Endings. This is a story about my early days as a warrior against religion. I was in the sixth grade, mid-90s. My parents sent me to a private Jewish school because they were concerned about me going to the mean streets of Livingston, New Jersey Public School, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. There was a dress code. I hated wearing a yarmulke. I was big into the idea that like just because I'm not wearing a yarmulke doesn't mean I'm not Jewish or that I don't believe in it. That was argued against, (laughs) shockingly. But the thing I hated the most was wrapping tefillin, which is a Jewish custom. That primarily takes place in the Orthodox community, but we had to do it. It's filling our leather ropes. You wrap around your arms seven times, and it has a box on the end of it that has a prayer inside it. And there's one that you put on your head, and you have to do both. And I was like, no, that was the line for me. I was like, not doing it. Nope. I was on my high horse about five days, and then the edict came down from the rabbis that I was not allowed to play sports if I wasn't going to wrap filling. And they said, during baseball practice, you're going to have to sit in a room with the head rabbi who will definitely, like, you know, teach you the right ways. And and let me paint a picture of what Rabbi Lerner looked like. Imagine Santa Claus, but like Jewish. We hated each other. I was everything he didn't like about new thinking. And he was a rabbi, so I hated him. <laughs> and well, first off, I'll say that I had recently read an unauthorized biography of Steven Spielberg. Where he had talked about how he is not a religious Jew, but he had just made Schindler's List and he had done all this amazing work in restoring the knowledge of the Holocaust. I was impressed because I was like, "That's how you do it. That's how you're a Jew. You don't have to go making a show of it, walking around with feeling on." You know what I mean? What ended up happening while I sat there for the first six days, I was quiet. It was like Goodwill Hunting, where they just sit there, and then it's like your time is up. It was like a battle of wills. And then finally he got frustrated and he yelled at me. He was like, I'm not gonna continue to come in here and waste my time for someone who doesn't believe in God and where are you gonna end up? Re-ripped into me, you know? And it just like worked him up. He went to the bathroom. He's like, I'm going to the bathroom. I was unhinged. I was almost crying, I was so angry. So I took the tefillin, which had been sitting on his desk. There was an exposed pipe and I wrapped the tefillin around it. and that's leather, so it, it holds. And I backed up all the way to the last desk in the room and I waited till he walked in and then I started swinging on it like Indiana Jones. First of all, I am amazed that he didn't have a heart attack right then. His mouth was so agape that I saw all his fillings. And then I started screaming at the top of my lungs titles of Steven Spielberg movies. You know, so I was like, Close Encounters of the Third Kind! E.T! Indiana Jones and he looked at me like this kid's crazy in my mind I was like he'll get this but he didn't know that I had read that then I took it a step further I was like USC Arizona these are just facts that I had read from Steven Spielberg's biography because he grew up in Arizona and that he had gone to USC so it's like really didn't make any sense what he was hearing You know, God, as I'm telling you this story, I'm I'm feeling for him, because he must have walked in that room and saw like a 13-year-old boy just turned upside down, crazy, committing a hate crime. I mean, defacing religious artifacts. It must have been a lot for him to swallow. The next thing I knew, security guards had my hands behind my back and were walking me down to the principal's office where I waited. My mom showed up, they called her out of work, I remember looking at my mom being yelled at by the principal. You know, I'm sure in her mind she couldn't believe that I had done that. But then she looked up and she looked at me through the glass and she smiled at me. That was my Schindler's List moment of the little girl in the red dress because I was like, everything's gonna be okay. And she came out and she goes, you're going to public school. Actor and comedian Adam Pally, he's
3: one of the stars of the sitcom Happy Endings. It's on ABC Tuesdays at 9 p.m. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media, where we don't have a dress code.
1: And now... Time for chattering class. This is where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party worthy topic. Today, the topic is video games, and our teacher is Kirk Hamilton. He is features editor at the gaming website Kotaku. They also provide most of the gaming coverage for a little rag called The New York Times. And, Kirk, hello. Uh, Hi there. How's it going? Pretty good. Must be kind of a big week for you. This week, Halo 4 came out. That is one of the biggest video game franchises around. It's been getting a ton of coverage. But you are going to tell us about titles that are equally or maybe more deserving of attention, starting with one, I understand, that's actually kind of a throwback?
6: Uh, Yeah, it's a game called XCOM Enemy Unknown, and yeah, it's a throwback.
1: A two, a two. I mean, when I think of throwback, I think of the games, you know, like Donkey Kong.
6: Right. It's funny. Um, there's sort of a new kind of throwback going on, not to anything so old as the 1980s, but sort of back to the 90s. The 90s is old now? The 90s is old. It's uh, it's old enough, but still, you know, it doesn't feel like like Donkey Kong is a pretty old feeling game if you play it now. You're making me feel old right now. <laughs> so the original XCOM was a game in 1994. A beloved classic sort of PC strategy game. A military game or something? It's like an alien invasion sort of deal where you play the guy in charge of basically all of Earth's defenses against aliens. So it's a two-part thing. You spend half your time kind of managing a base and researching technology and negotiating with other countries to keep everyone from panicking. And then the other half of the game is commanding your troops against aliens.
1: What is the update to it? What makes it different than the old version?
6: They got everything about it that made the original game great, right. But they also made it a little simpler. You can play it on an Xbox with a controller. You don't need a mouse and a keyboard. And one of the great things about the game is that you've got these troops, these little sort of GI Joe men and women. (laughs) The brilliant thing is you can customize them. Uh, You can change how they look and you can give them names. So like I had a squad named after all my friends. And you'd be amazed at how this makes you get attached to them, you know, because they don't always survive. The aliens are deadly. And it's like it's really tragic. There's a wall in your base that like keeps all of their names and commemorates them and how, how well they did. <laughs> like a war memorial? Yeah, it's a war memorial in your base. It's surprisingly effective.
1: All right. You uh, mentioned this was a game that one would play on, you know, PCs. I understand that that's kind of becoming a thing again. Instead of playing games on just Xbox, you're playing games once again on PCs.
6: Uh, yeah, that's it's even though PCs are always more powerful, most of them money in the big games were being made, primarily for consoles. So you'd get these kind of dumbed down PC games that weren't as complicated. Where this year, we've seen a lot of great indie PC games. And also, um, a lot of games that get released on Xbox have much better versions that come out on PC.
1: So give me an example.
6: One is actually a game from last year, uh, this Elder Scrolls fantasy game called Skyrim.
1: What is Elder Scrolls?
6: Yeah, well, the Elder Scrolls is the series. Okay. (laughs) It's a... uh, a wonderfully dorky name for a series. but uh, Tolkien,
1: I believe, came up with this video game. Yes,
6: yes. It's very, very Tolkien-esque. And, you know, you run around and you fight dragons. What's neat about the PC version is that there's a whole scene called the modding scene, which is uh, PC gamers who get into the code and modify the game. And oh, Bethesda, yeah. the company that makes Skyrim, is very supportive of the mod scene. So you can buy the game through a store online called Steam, and just download modifications, like user-made modifications, through the store.
1: So it's like an open-source video game, in a way.
6: Yeah, it is. It very much is. Some of the mods that people have made for this game, I mean, they'll completely change it. They'll make it look better graphically, they'll add new weather systems and stuff, but also (laughs) whole new characters, new voice dialogue, just giant changes. Knowing
1: gamers, too, there's a few off-color mods, perhaps. Suddenly all the characters are nude.
6: Oh, (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely. There are a lot of beautiful women companions that you can have follow you around in the game now. Oh, no. All right, let's f- finish up with something. I
1: really like the sound of this. this is, you're keen on a game that doesn't cost anything.
6: This is a, It's a free game that wound up being a real underground sensation this year. It's another game on PC. You can play on PC or Mac, actually, called Slender. A horror game. It's a really, really scary horror game, actually.
1: It's about dieting, obviously, which is really scary. Yes,
6: yes. It's like that Stephen King. It's like thinner. It's about losing weight. No, it's actually... So Slender refers to the Slender Man. And have you ever heard of the Slender Man? No. So Slender Man came from a forum thread at a website. I think it was a, the website Something Awful people were just goofing around coming up with scary pictures that they would photoshop and put a monster in the background and one of them was this tall faceless man in a tuxedo with like really long arms and legs oh man and you know then they came up with this whole mythos in this forum thread coming up with the slenderman mythos and he steals children and you know he comes for you at night and stuff so the way the game works is there's no story almost you're in a park in this closed in park in the dark it's first-person perspective game, so you're looking through your own eyes. And you have to go collect these eight notes. Okay. And as you pick up the notes, they say things about Slenderman, you know, like, he comes for you. And then suddenly they'll turn around and he's standing right there. No! There are videos on YouTube, there's a ton of videos of people playing the game, and then screaming when he first jumps out, and they're really funny. <laughs>
8: Why were you there?
1: This is something that you get in gaming culture that you don't get from fans of other arts. You know, you don't see movie buffs making videos of themselves watching, I don't know, Rosemary's Baby.
6: (laughs) Right, definitely an an interactive only thing. (gasps) And Brendan, I have to admit, I
1: haven't been much of a gamer since the 80s. But since Pac-Man? I must say, watching other people play that Slender game on YouTube is worth a ton of quarters.
3: You know, These you're kind of right. What is it about seeing people freak out that is so entertaining?
1: I, don't, I think it has something to do with watching them scream and laugh at the same time. It's just watching the human brain get completely <laughs> overloaded. It's
3: wonderful. Completely. It's what we do to you every week on the show. Well look, speaking of screaming and laughing, coming mm. up we speak to author John Ronson who writes funny stories about hanging out with scary people. True. That and more when The Dinner Party continues.
1: Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that
3: gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we hear a new track from The Evans, featuring Ian McKay of the band Fugazi.
1: Nice. But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food.
3: And Rico, it's November, which means we are approaching America's greatest food holiday. Of course, Black Friday. I was thinking the day before Black Friday, Thanksgiving. No, no,
1: because Black Friday is the day you eat Thanksgiving leftovers.
3: Oh, I see. All right. Well, yeah, that's a great tradition. It is. That is. Uh, But here's another one. (laughs) Right around this time, food magazines publish their biggest issues of the year. Of course. Because Turkey Day is like the Olympics of food. And it's also the time of year when the guys behind the food blog, The Bitten Word, Clay Dunn and Zach Patton, stop by to tell us about the trends they've spotted in all those Thanksgiving issues we spoke earlier this week. Zach, Hello. Hello. And Clay, welcome. Thanks for having us. So let's begin. What are you guys seeing this year? I have a feeling um, Turkey is still in.
10: <laughs> Turkey's very much still in. Uh, this is actually our, our fifth year tracking the trends in 10 to 11 different magazines. Last year we came on the show. And we talked about how food magazines weren't really that excited about Thanksgiving or didn't seem to be. Yeah. Which is sort of a surprise because it's kind of the Super Bowl of of the home cook, right?
3: That's right. This is the swimsuit issue of food (laughs) magazines, if I (laughs) may. Something
10: like that. (laughs) This year, they are doubling down on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is back.
3: All right. Uh, And not to be uh, confused with the KFC Double Down, which was that sandwich with the two chicken
10: patties. (laughs) <laughs> that might be a good use of some Thanksgiving leftovers. Yeah, that would but... be a pretty
3: good turkey leftover idea. Um, but this year, they're doubling down. Does that mean more ad pages, more recipes? What does that
10: mean? We're seeing a lot of sort of supersized issues, and a lot of the different magazines actually uh, use the phrase ultimate Thanksgiving or ultimate guide to Thanksgiving. So they're kind of all in for Thanksgiving this year. and And a lot of the different magazines actually are laying out their Thanksgiving features Sort of as even more of like a survival guide, a Thanksgiving survival guide or a user's manual.
3: With words like ultimate and survivor's guide, it sounds to me like they're trying to appeal to male home cooks, kind of those dude cooks that have been celebrated recently in the food world a la Guy Fieri. Do you think that could be what's going on there?
11: I think that definitely translates in what we're seeing in trends with turkeys this year. Uh, the big trend with turkeys this year is about grilling and smoking turkeys. Oh yeah, uh, smoke yeah. <laughs> Five of the magazines have <laughs> techniques for how to how to grill or smoke a whole turkey. We have been really into the idea. We actually tried it over the weekend with uh-huh. uh, with a recipe from Cooks Illustrated. It's fantastic. You don't have to take up all that space in your in your oven mm-hmm. with a huge bird. You can have your sides in there. Do the turkey out on the grill. It's a really great technique.
3: And that kind of uh, jives with trends we're seeing nationally. Which this year a lot of there was a lot of ash. There's a lot of smoke in in food and in restaurants around the country. What else are you seeing? Are we seeing any? What What are some of the odder ingredients you're seeing for side dishes and stuff?
10: Well, it's interesting you had mentioned kind of following those those restaurant trends and those those culinary trends because the single standout ingredient. I guess that we saw this year is kale.:
3: It's kale's world, and we're just living in it.
10: <laughs> it's something that's been you know hugely popular this year. It yeah. seems like you can't go into a restaurant without seeing a kale dish on the menu, and it's definitely worked its way onto the Thanksgiving table. There are recipes to serve it raw in a salad, braised as a side dish, cooked into stuffings and dressings. yeah. Um, lot of kale.
3: So part of the reason kale is popular is because it tastes yummy, but it's also known to be very good for you. Can you tell me the unhealthiest kale recipe? Because I feel like I want to counter that.
11: I actually, one <laughs> that we've already tried ourselves at home over the last weekend. Uh, it is a kale that is creamed, much like you would cream peas. So kale with other greens, heavy cream. Uh, it is delicious not not for the diet minded.
3: And so do you just blanch the kale and just sap all the nutrients out of it and then just slather it with uh, dairy? Is that how it works? Uh, essentially it tastes <laughs> it tastes really good. That sounds great. So we have smoked turkey. Creamed kale. Uh, what What else uh, What else are you seeing out there? Uh, there's a big change this year in potatoes,
11: believe it or not. Hmm. Uh, for the first time since we've been tracking this over five years, the number of sweet potato dishes are way outnumbering the number of white potato dishes. Huh. Sweet potatoes of all kinds, you know, in gratins, mash, just roasted... Um, and my favorite thing about that is along with sweet potatoes bourbon is coming into the, the side dishes because uh, wow. lots of the magazines are are flavoring their sweet potato dishes with bourbon and as a Kentuckian I love seeing that.
3: Yeah well definitely bourbon has become more popular in cocktails around the country and southern cooking has been on the rise for a while so it's, it doesn't surprise me that they're merging. It's looking that way from the food magazines. So anything missing this year like any, any lack of something that you're like wow that's really strange.
11: Absolutely there's, there's there are several things that we noticed are missing this year. A big trend last year was a movement toward vegetarian main dishes. Mm. Uh, that's totally gone this year. Like the vegetarians are on their own at the <laughs> sides table, hoping that nothing has chicken stock in it.
10: Yeah. Another big absence that we noticed this year was with soup. In recent years, the food magazines that we look at have really featured a lot of different soups. In all of the magazines we looked at this year, there is a grand total of one soup recipe for Thanksgiving. It's a wow. parsnip and apple soup from Cooking Light. And Yikes. other than that, there are no <laughs> soups. So.
3: And I don't think that soup is going to really win a lot of friends. I mean, no offense, to the, <laughs> no offense to the parsnip. Oh, you know what, guys? We didn't talk about stuffing. We did not talk about stuffing. Any great stuffings? Well, the
11: one ingredient that keeps popping up as being a mix-in for stuffings is leeks. Actually, leeks. Yeah, it's something that we haven't seen in previous years. Uh, we're, but we're all
10: we love leeks. Yeah, I, d- I dig leeks. If you make a leek and kale stuffing, you will be on trend this year.
3: <laughs> There's nothing that matters more to me at dinner. Be, I know right? than to be on trend. Um, no, I'm glad. I like leeks. Are weren't they? They're like the, the symbol of Wales. Uh, in some Shakespeare play, they kill a Welshman and just shove leeks in his mouth to insult him. Really? So, oh yeah. So it was a. It was, I have
10: I have just learned more about leeks than
3: I think <laughs> I ever knew before. Shakespeare Shakespeare treated leeks as stuffing in a different way. <laughs> And Rico, I should note the leak scene I was half remembering there comes from Henry V. Ah. A soldier is force-fed a leak after insulting a Welshman. Okay,
1: so Henry's St. Crispin's Day speech, not so much the standout scene for you in that play. No,
3: I, I remembered the leak. It's uh-huh. <laughs> not surprising. Um Also, <laughs> I wanted to say it's interesting how so many restaurant trends bleed into home cooking, Yeah. but one trend you will never see on Thanksgiving, small plates. <laughs>
1: inexplicable. Yeah. Uh... Folks, if you like small messages, we make them and share them on Twitter. We are at D N L D. No turkey tapas. Our guest of honor this week is the Welsh writer, journalist, and documentarian John Ronson. He is known for his funny and thoughtful reporting about the world's most unusual people and subcultures, he interviewed psychopaths in his book, The Psychopath Test, and he explored the CIA's experiment with psychic powers in The Men Who Stare at Goats, which was adapted into the film starring George Clooney. His new collection of essays just came out. It's called Lost at Sea. And, John, welcome. Hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> You seem rather chipper this morning.
2: Yeah, I've never managed to come up with a kind of just an appropriate way of saying hi. It's always two up. No,
1: don't worry about it. It sounds great for radio. People are now awake and listening. (laughs) This book is subtitled The John Ronson Mysteries. For those who have not read it, Explain why that's an apt description of these essays.
2: Well, I I always like to start a story with a mystery. I find it very hard. People always say to me, are you ever going to write a psychopath test too? And the answer is always no, because I feel like a story starts when I've got a mystery to solve Mm -hmm. and a story finishes when I've solved the mystery.
1: A lot of these pieces sort of end with you not necessarily fully understanding what it is that you're examining. Of all of these stories, which one when you first started researching and reporting on it, were you actually least expecting that to be the case, where you had a very strong preconceived notion and it was just totally upended?
2: Yeah, it was this... Um, this story is actually going to be in the paperback of Lost at Sea. It's not in the hardback, but I'll tell you it anyway. Yeah, it's um He's a real-life superhero, Phoenix. He dresses up in a super suit of his own making and goes out to fight crime on the streets of Seattle. And so I went on patrol with him, kind of expecting it to be ridiculous. Silly. Yeah, ridiculous. And in fact, he was kind of amazing. He was like a real superhero. Uh, Does he have a power? He sort of has a power. (laughs) <laughs> he used to have actual weapons, like he used to always bring a, a grappling hook with him of course. to scale buildings. But the problem with grappling hooks is A, they're incredibly heavy. So if you're chasing a criminal <laughs> and you've got a grappling hook, it's really, it's really heavy. And um, B, once you scale a building, what do you do then? Yeah, how do you get so down? We, <laughs> yeah, if you scale a building is really high, what, you could have a parachute? By the time you're done,
1: you've got so much gear, you can't well, fight crime. What,
2: yeah, he had a net gun at one point, but he got ensnared in it one time, and the police had to cut him free. A what? A, what did he have? A net gun. It's a gun that shoots, just like Spider-Man, shoots a net that's supposed to okay. envelop the uh, bad guy. But so Phoenix's actual superpower is intense, and I have to say very stupid, bravery. Um, <laughs> after three days of patrolling with Phoenix and completely failing to find crime, he decided to confront a gang of armed crack dealers. So he oh took me God. to Seattle's crack area. I didn't quite realise. Uh, he had his bulletproof super and on, I had a cardigan, and told these crack dealers that if they didn't leave... You know, he was staying. We're standing. And? Well, they said, what are you doing? <laughs> this may be fun and games to you, but it's not fun and games to us. No. This is real life. This is how we feed our families. This is what they said to Phoenix. I found myself, of course, ostentatiously nodding in agreement with everything the crack dealers were saying. Yeah, <laughs> <Enough>. <laughs> In a
1: rare case, I'm sure, of agreeing
2: with crack dealers. It's three a.m. The shooting starts. You know, all I can do is hope they'll shoot around me. Yeah. But but they left. They said, "Well, if you're not going to leave, we're going to have to go home. We should <laughs> <Yeah>. kill you. <laughs> but you're going to have to go. We're going to have to go home.
1: It's just easier. Yeah. That's amazing. But that is, so uh, the mystery of it is actually finding out that this guy it actually it kind
2: of worked. Yeah, it worked. He was a real <laughs> superhero. I mean, I have to say, very flawed and problematic.
1: It does. It strikes me as you're telling me this. This is something I noticed in the book, actually. I get the sense that you now spend a lot of your life participating in or being around <laughs> unusual things like this as part of your work. Right? How <laughs> often do you live in what most of us would regard as the normal world of average people doing usual things? And and do you like it there?
2: Oh, I I do. And I, and I like it very much. You know, if my life is completely ordinary for about a month I'm very happy <laughs> and in fact I, as a, as a person who has anxiety in fact I, I relish ordinariness and routine but then after about a month of that I start to get you know, feeling itchy.
1: But you say that you're as you're a typically anxious guy. Why? How did you get into this line of
2: work? Yeah, I, I know it, it seems crazy that you know I've spent the last twenty five years of my life hanging out with anti Semites and Islamic fundamentalists sure. and shadowy army colonels who I'm trying to get to tell me about their secret goat staring initiatives. And and it does it does seem kind of crazy. But all I can say is that when I'm in these mysterious shadowy places. You know, I just feel really alive. I feel that... I feel privileged.
1: Well, that's an interesting word to use, actually, because I do think you approach your subjects with respect. You actually open the book with a piece about the horror rap band, The Insane Clown Posse. Mm. Here's a band actually very few journalists take seriously. Some of them call them one of the worst, most irresponsible bands ever. But by the end of your interview with them, they come off as these definitely damaged but complex actual people. How easily does that come to you? I mean, how hard do you have to work at not being cynical about your subject?
2: You know, the, the, the older I get, the less cynical and the more empathetic I get. I think when I started out, I probably would go into those kinds of places with, a, you know, an arched eyebrow, considering myself kind of above them. Mm. And I still consider myself rational and essentially sane. But Kind of. But the reason why the book is called Lost at Sea is because I think we all are, and I include myself in that, and we all reach for irrationalities and absurdities and crazinesses to see us through. And so for me nowadays the very worst thing, the worst crime is to be condescending. Hmm. As I say, the older I get and the more I realise that we're all driven by compulsions and irrationalities, probably more than we're driven by rationality. I like that about people now.
1: We have Two questions that we ask everyone on this show. Mm. The first is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you?
2: Uh, I tell you what used to bug me all the time. Have, have, have you heard of a guy called Louis Theroux? Yes. The son of Paul Theroux, the travel writer. Yes. In in England for like 20 years, Louis and I were always compared to each other. Really? Always. And it used to drive us both crazy. We felt like conjoined twins. And... <laughs> uh, in that I used to think, you know, like conjoined twins, for one of us to grow stronger, the other must die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Now we're older. Now we're both in our 40s. None of that animosity is there anymore. We both matured.
1: I'm glad you're not both murderously stalking each other. Yeah. All right. Well, here's our, our second question is sort of the flip of this. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be about anything. This can be about yourself or something about the world at large. I imagine that you stumble upon quite a lot of odd trivia in your travels.
2: Mm. Uh, I've got one because I just discovered this last week. This is fresh. Yeah, this is totally fresh. In fact, the guy who told me this was a bit reluctant to tell me because it was such a super secret. (laughs) It was an artist. He's an artist. I won't tell you his name. Amongst other things, he is a found photographer. He scours trash for photographs of people. So for years and years and years, he's found photographs. He sees them as people he finds in the trash. Anyway... He told me a secret about how he finds the photographs. He says if you see a mattress on the side of the road with some boxes next to it, the boxes, nine times out of ten, will contain thrown away photographs. What But if it's a mattress, I don't know. But he says if it's a mattress and some bags, no photographs. He says if it's boxes and no mattress, no photographs.
1: And, and he has no idea why those two things should now, be conjoined
2: he has no idea why
1: now this is a mystery
2: i've got to say I'm, this is this is what i have not <laughs> tested this i have to say this is his secret not mine
1: and brendan john told me another similarly inexplicable thing a photographer pointed out to him okay so you know dis- if you see a discarded plastic bottle on the ground often the cap isn't screwed on yeah. There's this British energy drink that if you ever see one lying on the sidewalk
3: or something, apparently the cap is always on. That's, wow. Yeah. All right. You know? That is not exactly a Sherlock Holmes level <laughs> mystery, but no. it is kind of mysterious. <laughs> In England,
1: it's a lower bar for mystery these days, I guess. Mm.
3: And that's the dinner party for this week, folks. Next week, we hear from Jan Martel, author of Life of Pie.
1: Pie is his main character, that is not the pastry.
3: Though A Life of Pie does sound kind of amazing right now. Oh,
1: always. Uh, Assistant producer Jackson Musker helps bake our show each week. Our interns are Tamika Adams and James Kim. Thanks also to Brendan Willard, Jess Horowitz, Chris Clark, Sandra Barron, and Peter Clowney.
3: And now before we leave you, it's time for One For The Road, a song to listen to on your way to, returning from this week's dinner parties. The
1: band is The Evens, featuring Fugazi frontman Ian McKay. They have a new album out called, of course, The Odds. It comes out soon. Here's the first single. It's called
3: King of Kings. Bon appétit, bon appétit.
1: Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Holmes. And I'm Encyclopedia Francis Newnham. Wait, encyclopedia! A mystery. Somebody's been leaving scripts about with Kai Rizdahl's name written upon them. Gee, who would do such a thing? Prime suspect, Kai Rizdahl. Uh, no, Sherlock. Right again, Holmes!